everyone. I am very pleased to welcome you back to our podcast. Uh, Max and I have a very special guest today. We have Matthias, one of the co-founders of Passbase and a very dear friend who will tell us more about his startup journey, his general life, and also some of the learnings he had over the years. Hey, Matthias, how are you doing? Hey, I'm very good. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. Guys? A pleasure. Um, so first of all, Matthias, why don't you tell us a bit more about your background, what you're currently doing, and then we can just see where we go from there. Sure. Yeah. Like, so um, I'm originally from Germany. Like both of you guys um, grew up in the southern part there. Um, went to like Technical University of Munich then. This is, I think, also where I really got like a deep exposure to a lot of uh, exciting new technologies and um, other like like-minded people who were interested in startups, entrepreneurship and technology. Um, went then during my master's to, to the West Coast, um, basically wrapped up my, my studies there at Stanford, which was a, a whole separate but uh, similar tech bubble and innovation bubble where I spent a good amount of time and then started working as software engineer in Silicon Valley. And this is, I think, really where I got caught by the whole startup and entrepreneurship bug again, um, which, which later then motivated me to, to, to start basically a company with like two of my friends. Um, and yeah, this basically fast forward now evolved into a little bit more than 30 full-time team members spread across um, mostly like two, two hubs, like one in New York, one in Berlin. Of course, everything is like fairly remote nowadays, but uh, still like those two offices stand as today. And um, like in, in, in my startup, basically, I'm, I'm the CTO and uh, try to build the identity layer of the Internet. So I hope that's the 30. What does building the identity layer of the Internet actually mean? Yeah, I mean, look, for, for that, I have to like, start a little bit earlier because um, basically historical wise in the last couple of decades um, your identity was somewhat issued through like a government agency so like in 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 uh, in the past governments countries issued you like a plastic card that somewhat said like this is you this is your like number in like the centralized system in this country and um this kind of like worked for the last couple of decades, but as our world now shifts more and more online and not only online, but like the physical and the online world more and more merge, um, this kind of like past identity system doesn't hold today anymore. And um, as we were even think like five, 10 years ahead, there are like all these buzzwords out there with like the metaverse, um, which is basically both this physical and digital world um, or like mostly like digital world in that time. Um, the question still like holds then like, okay, what is your identity then? And how do you prove actually who you say you are, first of all, like online, but also like one day in like those digital worlds? Because in the end, like everything somehow needs to tie back to like your real world identity um, due to money laundering, due to other things. And I think that, our world basically needs a whole different understanding of actually what what makes you you and like like how your identity is meshed from like various credentials, wallet addresses, 
citizenships, anything around you. So um, it's like a super like vast, vast topic that I can go like the next hour on that basically. You have you've started your entrepreneurial journey in the crypto space, right? So we can talk a bit about that later. But one of the core beliefs of many people that I know who are in crypto is that identity on the internet can be different than identity in the real world. And then you can basically just create a new identity by using a new wallet or just like trying to separate different identities because you want to be a different person in a different space. So how do you, like yourself coming from, like a little bit at least from the crypto space, now get back to the like real world identity? And do, do you think that it's necessarily a conflict or do you think you can combine those two? No, you, you hit the nail here. Like it's personally also like always uh, like a very, I have to split somewhat like what, what's my personal opinion and what's like somewhat the, the company that I'm trying to build, like what's the interest of them, of course. <laughs> like, whereas like I'm more also like the, the crypto anarchist who thinks like everything should be anonymized and, and on, online. But of course we have to understand if, if, if it would be like this, there would be here like a wild west basically, because this is already what we're seeing nowadays in, um, in like a lot of like crypto adjacent projects um, that there's just like, a lot of like fraud and like a lot of like still like legal transactions happening. And this is why there's like the requirement usually, and this is usually what governments push for it, that there is some form of like a compliance that you can tie back whatever people are doing online um, to like real world people who then in the end could be held accountable for that. And um, I think in the end, what like really motivates me is that Nevertheless, even though I think, um, and I'm basically in charge of building this thing here, at least, um, that I can build it the right way, that you can like not overdo any form of like monitoring transaction. And whereas, whereas, um, whereas like some, some governments would love to have like everything fully transparent, I would say. Um, so the answer is, it depends. Like, I guess, I guess the one, that's always, but, always a good answer. Yeah. But, um, it is like, it, I, I fully hear you. And like, there are like people, I think it was like Naval or someone who kind of also said that in the future, you will have like multiple identities, like your work identity, like your private identity and like all of these things. But I always believe that the moment you are interacting and transacting value, as form of like tokens, NFTs or anything, there has to be a form of a like compliance, like anti-money laundering compliance. And these things need to be rooted back towards like real world people. And I want to ba basically with, with Passbase, we want to basically build this scalable digital infrastructure for building the identity layer that you can do this thing and be sure that you're not on onboarding like a fraudster or a criminal on your platform. Can you go a bit into the, um, so very, very interesting. Um, can you go a bit into the product? Like what does the product do in order to kind of overcome that, um, that, that, that potential issue, right? Yeah. So, I mean, to this day, like how the product still looks, it's like in the end, um, like a know your customer project, product, like it's called KYC in that, in that world. And all what we do so far is if you have a service, like a crypto wallet or anything that is like, 
has to fulfill KYC requirements, then you need to identify the real person behind this crypto wallet or this, um, like your service. And for that, like we offer basically a service where they can very easily deploy a short like facial recognition technology where they like make a short selfie video. We assess that it's like a real person and scan basically the facial biometrics. And then they take a picture of their ID document. Um, and we kind of like match that, check it's that it's like a real document, um, that this has all the security features. And we basically wrap that up and give it back to the users. And so like to the clients that they can like in the end, like just say the checkbox, okay, this is the person who they claim to be. And this is a person is also not like on a financial or criminal watch list. And a lot of these companies nowadays, like the need for the service is just like exponentially grew over the last couple of years as every company almost becomes like a financial service nowadays. If you think even like, all your chat applications like WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, all of these um, apps nowadays, they have some form of a, like a financial component where you can like send money from A to B um, and all that stuff. So it's just like, if we just look in the next five to 10 years, the need for like these kind of like services where you send money from A to B is just like growing and growing. Even, even if you're a rent on Airbnb nowadays, you have to verify your identity. And I think at the core principle, what, what we at Passbase try to solve is that you don't have to do this at every service over and over again, where you do this like the whole time, but in the best case, you do this once and you can prove ownership that this is still who you, that, that this is still like your data. And you can even like one day potentially hold it yourself and then like very easily just with a facial proof, um, similar like a face ID proof that this is still you and like you can prove your identity to like to like X or like N numbers of services. And and do you believe that um, it's kind of gonna it's gonna be very similar to kind of you where where in, in different web pages you now have the possibility to log in either with Facebook, your Apple account, or or Google that you you as a user decide that you want to kind of go through Passbase versus another service, or do you think it's still gonna be a B two B B two B two C service where at the end of the day the the provider decides which service they provide to the user, or is it gonna be user driven at the end of the day? Yeah. So I think that the consumer identity game is very clearly um, is clearly like in big tech, you know, like like Google, Facebook, they have like billions and billions invested into just like owning this layer, Apple. So I, I, I strongly believe that like it's basically useless to try to win this this war against them. This is why we really focus on this like high friction onboarding process of like fulfilling this process and then potentially even like trying to partner up this is stuff that i'm actually right now looking in like hey can i issue basically a like a token or something into like the apple wallet or the google wallet that they can then then people can re reuse later on um, and in that way like solve this like in a more scalable way and that potentially like partner up with those companies and um, and you leverage their like apis so that's like more like where we focus on and, and of course also build a lot of tools for those um, companies that have to like, just like run this process today, because it's like, it sounds simple, but it's way more complex because the, the moment like you have a, like a, a global service, then you need different documents for different users from different countries. And then um, you need to like fulfill like all these compliance and regulations. And then it gets very, very quickly complex. And so like, it's like really like, 
in the front, like you only see like, oh, you just make a selfie video and like a photo of an ID and then match this. No, no, no. This is like so much underneath it, like so much complexity. Um, what's basically then hidden in like terms of workflows and onboarding workflows and policy requirements for clients. So, yeah. If I don't you, know if you answered your question. <laughs> uh, I, Absolutely. I, I'm always wondering when I look at these kinds of like almost decision trees, if you simplify it, yeah. how do you weigh false positives versus false negatives? So if you like your customers specifically, if you say this person is who he claims to be, how much worse is that than saying, okay, these five people are not who they claim to be, but they actually are. So like, how do you think about this trade-off internally? Because I think if you completely want to avoid false positives, you just don't let anyone through, right? But right. that's uh, that way it doesn't work. So where, like, how do you think about this trade-off, both from a business perspective and also from an algorithmic perspective? Yeah, I mean, the, like in the end, it's a level of how much friction you're willing to to make for a fraudster to like fool the system. So there is no world where there is like no false positive at all. Like this is like wishful thinking. Of course, you can try to minimize as much as you, you can by just like having a really solid like active liveness detection or like having really soft, sophisticated um, ID authenticity checks that like you check for like a real document that, hey, if someone has a perfect fake ID and uh, this person can also like go to just like Deutsche Bank and open a bank account there. And uh, it's, it's just like in the end, how much data can you gather? And also like how much data can you back check with like centralized services? You know, like some countries offer that where you can just like say, <clears throat> this data I have now extracted from, from this ID document. It, does this person exist in, in this, in this database? So you can like back check database. Um, so like in the end, it's like a level of like how much effort you want to run and how much also the client is willing to to check to really ensure, or if they just want to have like a simple check and it's like fine. And this Got is it. usually based driven by driven by the companies. And if you think about the the people who commit fraud or try to commit fraud, you you are like indirectly interacting with them every single day, right? Because it's literally your business to be like the yeah. first layer of protection. I have a couple of questions, but my first question is, is it usually like organized like crime that steals identities and then tries to defraud people? Or is it something completely different that I haven't thought of? So who is your main culprit that you're working yeah. against? Yeah, I mean, you, you got it right. They're like literally organized gangs that, that just try to like do that. Um, and the only way what we can like sometimes do is like we collect like the email identifier. So like usually like we can just like block this email is not allowed to do it anymore, but that doesn't help because like they can just like use a different email sometimes to sign up on their service again. So what we're currently like even like looking at is we're building like a feature, which is like a facial ban that if you know that this is a repeat offender who tr always tries to onboard you can like just say like I don't want to see this face anymore. Oh, that's pretty dope. <laughs> and this person, and this person is basically banned from this service. Um, so this is what this will come in the next couple of months. Um, and but in the end, like 
they are like you you know like the longer that you work in this industry they're like all i've seen everything you know like all kinds of crazy stuff we've seen everything from deep fakes to like really like photoshop edited uh, id documents to anything what you can can think of and um in the end sometimes also like just like there are like social hacks what i've also heard this is a by the way like um n26 had like a massive problem with that in, in like a couple of years ago where people basically just like claimed to be a we're testing this onboarding or flow for this bank for n26 so there was like a gang that claimed hey we're testing we're like a testing service we, we test n26's onboarding flow and they just 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 got real world people from the street and gave them i think 30 or 50 bucks to say like, hey, you get 50 bucks if you try to sign up and create a bank account and, and submit feedback how it was, if it was smooth. But the people actually didn't weren't aware that they're actually opening bank accounts. And they basically just like saved all that information from these people and then literally had hundreds of real world bank accounts in the name of other people and to, to, could do basically all kinds of shenanigans with, that, with those accounts. Um, insane, insane. Money laundering. And then in the end, like you were like, okay, if you, I mean, if you're N26, how should you defend that? You know, like you basically, there was a person who actually really was the person with a real document and opened a bank account and the fraudsters just tricked these people into like opening bank accounts. So it's, it's just like, there's like the moment there are like, there's value in transactions online. As I said earlier, there will be fraud and there will be fraudsters. And it's uh, in German, you say like a cat and mouse game where it's always you're trying to catch those and fight those and then they come up with new schemes and like invent something. So it's it's a dark world we're living in. <laughs> I have a question to that actually technically, and I'm sorry, Mike, if I just kind of jump in, but I would be super interested from a technical perspective how you prioritize, right? Do you prioritize against kind of optimizing the system in regards to accuracy? And, and more or less making the product better in that perspective? Or do you optimize um, against finding um, fraudsters and making that side more reliable, more or less? Like, how do you optimize? Do you have certain kind of metrics, key KPIs that help you kind of prioritize against it? Or do you have a strategic kind of view on that that drives your decision-making and prioritization? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we have like metrics set up, like passing rates or uh, like false positives and all these things that we, of course, measure. Um, but in the end, like a lot of like of our feature roadmap is of course also driven by our clients. Like um, if you're a B2B founder, every B2B founder knows that in the end you're building what your clients tell you. And if they say like, hey, this one feature that I gave an example with the facial band, this was a feature request from our client. Like they basically said like, oh, we always see the same people. I, I don't want to see this person's face anymore. And we're like, cool, we can build it. <laughs> so, um, this is somewhat like how you do it. You have like, I have one team that of course sets up the baseline metrics, looks at that. And it's like, just continues to improve, continues to improve the, the liveness component, continues to improve the, the ID extraction side. And then on the other side, of course, you're listening to your clients and, and here, here get a post check what they actually want as additional features. Yeah. I, I think we could talk about the, the product, as you mentioned earlier, all day. Um, but yes. I, I would like to would like to shift gears a little bit because we we obviously only have limited time, um, and I would like to talk a little bit about the early days of a company, a little bit more about your journey, 
and just a couple of meta-level points. So, I mean, I know like parts of the story, but why don't you tell us about how did your company start out and how did you actually decide to join the identity game? Yeah, uh, it was a bit unusual, I guess, um, in hindsight, but um, actually not too too unusual in the end. Like because finally, like now looking back, it's easy to connect the dots. But um, what I basically did in the end after I finished my master's and I started to work in San Francisco as a software engineer for um, also like a cybersecurity identity company. So this was like somewhat like my first introduction into this like whole world of identity. But um, at that time, I was like still working with my two co-founders, Felix and Dave, on a separate idea, which was like more like a cryptocurrency wallet where you can like merge different crypto exchanges and then trade on those crypto exchanges so um, it was like somewhat like a crypto tracker slash trading app um, called coinance back then and the key problem that we faced there was really that in order to like use the full the full app you had to like create seven or eight independent accounts on like coinbase beat binance bitphoenix and all these crypto exchanges and ha you had to do like this, you know your customer check that we're doing now over and over again. So you, every time you had to make basically scan your ID, like your, your your ID document and like a, a selfie and all that stuff. And this is where we really like got the idea from like, hey, this is stupid. Why isn't there like not like a unique like identity layer where you do this once and then you just like somewhat log into your account and then share and say like, I want to now use this these and these, and these services. And um, This was basically around like when we also went to Burning Man, me and my two co-founders and really came up basically the, the consensus after we came back was really like, okay, let's pivot, let's focus on that. And, um, and we had like fairly quick success with that. So like we closed a bunch of like uh, early angel investors um, and before it was like fairly hard for us to like blow some financing or like, like some VC funding. So we had like um, very good uh, acceptance from like the investors and um, this really motivated us to double down on this problem space of building somewhat like a, a unique identity um, for the internet. And um, this is basically, yeah, how, how it started and how it came to what we're doing today. And I think the more we, the more we kind of like hashed out the whole idea, it, it, it became more and more clear. Okay. It's like almost a, Yeah, I think Max, you said it earlier, like B2, B2C, like the ideal end product, but we really understood. And um, as we dive deeper, we're like, okay, we have to start with the B2B component to kick off the flywheel here. Yeah, the, the good old classic B2C to B2B switch. <laughs> yeah. who, who hasn't heard of it? What, one thing that you said is something that I have thought about a lot in the last couple of months because it came up multiple times when I was talking to some other early stage founders that are currently starting out. And I think you said you basically, I'm not quoting literally, but basically what you said is you got conviction about your business idea because you were able to raise funding for it, right? And what what I'm still debating, and I, I haven't, like, I don't have a full, a clear opinion on it yet, but How much is like interest from investors and investors investing an actual success in the early days? And how much is it just a, a proxy and also a proxy that can lead you into the wrong 
direction. I would, would love to hear your opinion if you have any. Yeah. It definitely can lead you into the wrong direction. Um, but to understand like where we came from is like we were crazy broke at that time <laughs> to say. <laughs> so like, Dave and I quit our jobs. We're like living from our savings. The savings became every week, every month, less and less. And at some point in time, we basically had like to raise some funding if we want to continue working on our startup. And um, and I don't know, in the end, like somewhat this idea got traction with like the investors and it at least set us up for the problem space. So I think what we really like understood from that is like, oh, this seems to be a big problem. Like we chatted with like a bunch of companies who to confirm that, like with a bunch of these crypto exchanges that we had relationships with and other founders, we just asked them about like, hey, is this a problem for you? And like all with all this data, we then like went to basically investors in our like first pre-seed deck. And they basically confirmed, yeah, like this seems to be a big problem. And we're like, what like, then they basically gave us a shot and we're willing to invest. And if you're Totally honest. I mean, Mike, you know, investing itself from like your own little angel investing, like the first round pre-seed, you're just betting on the team and the problem space, basically, that you're like, think, hey, this team can build something in that problem space. And this is a big problem that one day companies are willing to pay for. Um, yeah, and that, that was more or less uh, what <laughs> where, where we started. But I wouldn't say that like if I would give tips to... Um, to startups like or other founders starting with on their journey, I wouldn't wouldn't make this the only uh, only reason why they should start a company. But for sure, if you if you want to continue working on it, you need to have some for somewhat a fundable idea that um, is somewhat like where like venture. If you want to go down the venture route um, with like VC money. You need to have a fundable idea, be in a, in a market that is fast growing and uh, have somewhat like a technical defensibility. But that doesn't mean that it's right. You, know, you can also build just like a nice services business and make a lot of money with that. Interesting, interesting take, right? I mean, like you mentioned also a couple of points, which of course the investor part is one thing, getting the conviction and the, um, let's say, uh, let's say first buy-in from the first angel investors. The other two points that you mentioned are, is kind of customer feedback um, and potentially also um, product. Um, how far were you um, when it comes to kind of letter of intent or any customer feedback that they actually said, yeah, we would buy this and we would pay you money. Uh, that's kind of the first part of it. And the second part, how far, how, how like how fast and, and how far have gone with, how far have you gone with the development of the product? Because of course, a lot of pre, um, like uh, let's say pre-seed startups are actually thinking about when to start building and when to start talking to customers. Some do it the building yeah. before talking to customers and vice versa. So I would love to kind of get your point on your perspective on how you started i think you should start talking from day one with customers if you can because um if you're not talking with someone then there's just like the risk that you're wasting time building something that the market doesn't want and um in our case i mean we had like a few like one or two letter of intents but we we just spend a lot of time with those companies and talking to them and i remember in one of our earliest slide decks there was the quote from one of our um, persons that we talked to who led like uh, the identity team of uh, one of these crypto exchanges. 
and who basically said like, yeah, if you build that, you will have a call with my CTO tomorrow, basically. So this was like, you you really want to build something uh, where you solve the problem of a potential client whose hair is on fire. So like, like this is, I remember in one of my classes at Stanford, they had like literally this person whose hair was on fire and your basically product solves this person's problem. And, um, and if you have like a few of those clients uh, and they're willing to pay money for you solving this problem for them, I think then you're up to something. Then you're really like building something that, um, that, that, that like the market wants. Of course, some, it, the, 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 and this is the hard part and this is the job of every founder is finding that, you know, sometimes people also tell you something uh, that they want something and they actually don't want something or they tell you something they don't want something and they actually want it. Like uh, famous examples, like if you, like these like 10 to 15 minute delivery apps, um, was it really necessary that people said like, oh, you can have food within 10, 15 minutes? Most people would probably have said like, I don't care, like two hours is fine. But the moment you started using it, I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. 10, 15 minutes is like this magical experience and suddenly people started using it. Um, so uh, it's, of course, it's like a consumer game. It's a whole, a whole different thing. But um, I think in the end, like it comes down to like really, really like working closely with your, your clients and also like knowing what, who is your ideal client. Um, and we have now over 200 clients here uh, at Pathways today, but we have like identified and we have classified them into like tier one, tier two, or tier three. And we basically really want to spend time with our tier ones because they are they are in the markets that we believe the most that we want to like spend time with, and they are giving us the best feedback in order to shape our product in the next coming years into the right direction. And they come up with the right feature requests that we want that that we should be building for them. And the, the classification, because I love that part, right? And and kind of especially with the diversity of customers that you probably have, even though you have one ideal customer profile, maybe that kind of drives your, your sales process. At the end yeah. of the day, you want to work with the customers that are kind of driving the impact of your, your roadmap on the on the product side. Um, how did you define on, on, let's say, the classification of different customers, also from a technical side, that is more or less driving your decisions and actually um, yeah. building the right roadmap? Yeah. So, I mean, in the end, I think even, even that is here a classical um, occurrence of the 80-20 rule again, where you basically say like 80, 80% of our revenue is only coming from 20% absolute numbers of our like um, customers. So um, that already makes it easy to just like focus like on a smaller number. But even then, if you zoom into, into, into those 20% into these um um, like less than 40 companies for us, um, we basically identified and looked into which verticals our clients are. So um, clients who use our product is anything from financial services to cryptocurrency companies to mobility companies, marketplace, uh, like gambling, like everything where somewhat you need like a, to a higher like assurance that this person is either old enough to do it or uh, is the person who they claim to be or is not a fraudster or like anything like something like that. And like in these verticals, we basically looked at which verticals do we think are like the most relevant in the next five years. Fun fact, one of them is crypto. <laughs> and uh, um, then basically 
uh, really try to identify which clients of us are like in those verticals. And with those clients, we like very, very closely work with. So we have like shared Slack channels. We have like bi-weekly calls. We are like very closely with the founders. We like, if I'm in like one of the city where it's, where like some of these founders are, I'm going to their office, trying to better understand their problems, their needs, their product. I use their own products like myself in order to really understand, okay, how can we improve something here? And in that way, you you already like, like mentally program yourself of like, okay, I want to work with those few companies because they're probably being my, uh, the companies that carry my revenue and the, the roadmap in the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, one more question on the on the early days, and then I would love to dive a bit into the conversation about Europe versus the US, or yeah. Europe plus the US, uh, because it doesn't always have to be a battle, right? Necessarily. <laughs> But how did you meet your two co-founders, and how did you decide to build a business with them specifically? Because one of the questions that we often get from people yeah. who are like want to build a company is How do I actually find my co-founders and how do I decide who to do it with? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. Um, I think the right relationship you should be having with your co-founders is, and I even have this to this day, that I'm thinking about both Dave and Felix. It's a fucking privilege and honor to be working with such exceptional people. And every week, every month, I learned from them and I deeply, deeply respect their profession and what they're doing to an extent that I could never like live up to the same level that they are on. And I can speak for both individually that like Felix and I met during our um, like bachelors in uh, the Technical University in Munich. And Felix is an incredible talented designer and product manager. And um, I work with him on like a few different cool projects, but every time when he built like a product or was designing something or working for some like other company, I was just like, oh my God, this is so good. This the stuff that he designs and does from like a product standpoint, all the features and everything that I always knew that if I want to start a company, I want to have this guy on my team. And um, this is, was like the whole aspect regarding like Felix that like, um, he's just like exceptionally, exceptionally good. My opinion, the best product manager and designer that I know. Um, and Dave was my roommate in San Francisco. And he was like, at that time, already working for a few years at Google. And he's just like so structurally and operationally excellent in whatever process he's setting up that every time I have a meeting with him or we need to like do something and decide something, we need to push something. It's like, like such a delight that how, how structured he's thinking about things um, that it was just like, it's like such a privilege to be working with someone like him. And I think this is the right like level you should be thinking about. Um, you should really look up to like your co-founders and admire them for their work and their like areas that they're good at. And um, then you will have like, you will be able to form an, an outstanding founding team. Yeah. Plus, you have to need to have different levels of expertise. Like in a good case <laughs> yeah. from us three, it's like you know Felix product design, the engineering, Dave operations, pro, um, um, strategy and, and finance and all that stuff. Got it. 
And yeah, what, one topic we, we have actually discussed that a couple of times already on here because yeah. Max and I talk about it a lot as well, right? Because we're both originally from Europe. Max is like a bit more bullish even on Europe than I sometimes am. Um, yeah. But basically, I would love to hear your stance on why did you decide to move to the US, right? And I think Stanford was a part of it. So let's just start with that. How would you compare studying at Stanford with studying at TU Munich, which is one of the best universities like Germany and arguably Europe has? Yeah. So, I mean, it already starts by just being like much smaller. I think like Tom has like almost 50,000 students, whereas Stanford has like 16, something that's like a third, like basically of what, um, what, what Tom, is, Tom has. And um, it's like much more, um, they much more closer take your hand. It's like much more like a, like a high school than it is um, like in, in atonement, like those big public German or European universities, you're like throwing into like the cold water, hundreds of students. And then you see if, if the people can swim. Whereas like you have really like class projects, um, you have teaching assistants, you have like a tendency and like all these things. It's like a much more protected environment as well as this whole concept of like you living on campus and um, we're like working with your peers. This is like, like it's in Stanford is like a beautiful campus. It almost feels like a like a holiday resort sometimes, where you have like all these different things, like a like really nice like food, where like like food halls where you can go to, nice sport offers, training grounds, and everything. So it was just like a very I really like I enjoyed the time that I was there. Whereas like Tom is like way like it was like a whole different experience. Um, that being said, that doesn't mean that like the Tom wasn't a great experience in all in, in all in all respect. Like I loved my time at Tom and it was like fantastic um, because it somewhat taught me a lot of the things that I didn't know at that time. Um, and and I met a lot of my like really really great people at Tom. Um, so yeah, like it's it's hard to directly really like comparisons like they're so different in itself, but. Um, yeah, would you would you agree with like my my stance on it, especially if you study at like a large public university in in Europe? Is there it's mostly this image of someone who is like fairly broke, who doesn't have that much responsibility, and can like live their lives fairly freely, but the like environment is like fairly shitty, right? I mean the the lecture halls and all of that, like. Not not the best things in the world. The content is good though, but like the the overall environment, just like you just notice, like it's a bit more broke. And then in the US, I think you you alluded to it. It's just you like you are almost in like a resort or something. It's like they they treat you so much differently there, and everything is like up to really modern standards. And you you just have so much more life surrounding the academic environment at least that's that's how it feels for me so the social aspect is like very very much different in the u.s and it's very focused right. on that yeah i mean in the end it's it's really in, in in germany it's like what you make out of it like you know like and you are like your own you're on your own responsible for 
like what you make out of like your study time. You can also just like go there, study and go home and and do your whole own thing if, if you whereas like in in the US you're like more like in this like safe ecosystem protected and um it's it's like a almost also like you get what you pay for if you think like the whole US tuition fees is like an absolute madness compared to how cheap it is in in Europe to study in most countries. Um so so yeah it's like two different concepts I guess. Yeah and you learn I enjoyed both. both right Yes, yeah, I enjoyed exactly. both. I think it was it. I it, I really was helpful, and and it told me the the single most thing which Tom taught me is really that I was Tom made me a self learner. That it's super easy for me to just like learn anything I want by just like spending time with me in front of the computer or like the book, um, because I didn't get all the help. Hey, you need you need to do this, and then this this this, and then and then in order to learn. So this is like really the The thing that a German university will teach you is how to be like a self-driven learner. Yeah. Do you think though, um, just one one follow-up question to that, right? I mean, there's a reason why at Stanford there are like a number, like I think the most uniform, unicorn founders actually come from Stanford, at least in the US right now, um, yeah. compared to MIT and Harvard. Um, like how, like, do you think that's just because they 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 find, the, the, of course, the best people and it has some leverage effect that there's been so many great founders that the, the future founders want to come to Stanford? Or do you think there's something exceptional about the education that prepares future founders to actually take on the journey and, and do the right things at the right time. Right. So I, I think definitely like the education is great there, like, and they give like a lot of good resources to do that. But I don't think that they do it like 500 times better than like other universities or something. So they might, they might be like 30% better than what you can learn somewhere else. But like in the end, the content is the same, you know? I think what where Stanford like really thrives is in building this ecosystem around the university with like venture capitalists, tech companies, startups that are all like somewhat nurturing of Stanford and still keeping close contact with them and then like easily recruit great talent out of it or um they really like offer just um this sandbox environment for a lot of like like startup interested people at Stanford to just like try out, raise a little bit of money and use no, maybe it grows into like a massive company. And I think this is what like some like universities really can like learn from, from Stanford in, in Europe. And Tom, by the way, does a good job of that already by having the Unternehmer Tom in, in, in I think it's, it's called that Tom, um, somewhat this like, ecosystem and uh, an organization that helps students to start companies and i think what what they now like still lacking but it's also improving over the last couple of years is really like the access to venture capital where like student projects turn into like small companies then turn into like big companies if they get like the funding to grow the companies big Yeah, we, we could talk about so many other things. One really quick question before we go into our last question is and, and try to try to do it brief because I know we can talk about it for like an hour as well. Why do you have two offices and why mm -hmm. don't you just like build your business either in Berlin or in the US? Yeah, it's like also somewhat how we started the company because like we 
originally started it in our like living room in San Francisco. This is where we it all started. But then we we somewhat closed our first round of institutional funding from a investor in London. So we actually worked for like four or five months out of like our London office. And then the whole whole like chaos around Brexit happened at that time. And then we were like, okay, whatever, we're leaving again. And um, at that time we were like already eight eight people and we couldn't get like all the visas. And then it was like more like a, a challenge to get everyone US visas. So we were like, okay, fair enough. Some people go to Berlin because it's like so easy. It's our home base. And some people go like Dave and me at that time. And then George went to the US to like do the fundraising for our seed round. And it somewhat naturally happened somewhat that we have a US East Coast office and then like a tech hub product and engineering hub in, in Berlin. And um, even throughout the whole pandemic, I mean, both offices grew. So like we have like around 10 people somewhat now in the US team and 20, a little bit more than 20 in, in our European team. But um, everything got way more remote. And we even thought about, we had like a much larger office here in in in, um, in New York. And now we're like just in like we work here. Um, but our like office also like in Berlin, um, still like six, seven people are going and then everyone else, a lot of other folks are working remote. Um, so let's see how this will change over the next couple of months, I guess. <laughs> I love yeah. office culture. I love having an office and a place to go to in both cities. Yeah, me me too. It's pretty cool. Uh, I think, Max, you have one more question? Just just one, one, one quick one. Why did you choose New York over San Francisco? Since, of course, there's a lot of things that kind of relate you back to SF, no? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, constant conversation I have also with Mike here, who is in the, in that decision making process right now. Um, so, I think in the end, what really drove the decision to settle for New York was that the time difference from from Central European time to the East Coast here in New York is like six hours versus nine hours. So, like you have like just like three hours more overlap with our our team if you're like here in the US. And this is what I hear from a lot of other founders who are basically West Coast and Europe. The problem that they are facing is really like the, the morning when they start their day, people in Europe are more or less done. And um, and that that was like a big advantage. Then direct flights from New York here to Berlin is like seven, eight hours. So you can literally like uh, fall asleep in a flight in the evening and wake up in uh, Berlin the next day. So um, those were like really big, big advantages. I think that that spoke for um, opening up an office here on the East coast. And I think a lot of other companies, this is like more, more the common, common path. If like European companies come to the US, that they first start in New York and then at some point in time might go West if they're like really large. Yeah. Yeah, uh, as I, as Matthias alluded to, we we've talked about that topic a lot, and it's still not a, a finished conversation. But to <laughs> to to close it all off, uh, Matthias, we we love to give our the people that that listen to this some just content recommendations usually. So, what is what do you think is the book or piece of content that has shaped you the most? Am I allowed to peek into my Audible? You of you course. are. Kindle, Audible, whatever you want to look into. <laughs> Already a good, interesting point that you apparently like audiobooks. Yeah, it's I, it's it's my 
my thing that I do when I work out or like um, um, or go on a hike or something like this or like a walk. It's it's really nice to just like um, think about something else or like listen and or like on like car drives. Um, yeah, I agree. So so I, they're, they're like there's like not one content piece that I can give, um, but I think nowadays there's like we are bombarded with so much content that there's like almost too much noise nowadays that you don't really know what you listen to, should listen to. I think that when I started the company, um, we back then did like YC startup school and they have like this video series of 20 videos that are really fantastic and excellent content on how to start a company, how to build a company, how to, to find product market fit and all these things. So Mike, you probably know them really well as well as well. So I think this is really, really excellent content that you, that future founders should, should um, like watch and listen to in terms of books themselves. Um, I think the hard things about hard things is really a mm, fantastic yep. book for like founders to just like face um yeah, like not the nice and easy parts of like starting a company and how to navigate those. Like if you have to let someone go or like all these things, this is just like hard, really hard things that you can learn. I mean, the title says itself. Once you then like transition more into like a growth phase, like closer, getting closer to series A, the high growth handbook from Elat Gil is mm. also like a really, really good book that I can recommend. I sent this uh, around so many times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a great one. You yeah. probably hear for... We have a copy somewhere in the office. So. <laughs> Very good one, yeah. Yeah, I, I like the recommendations. We, we definitely talked about the Startup School before and High Growth Handbook, but I don't think that we've recommended Hard Things about Hard Things before. So like definitely a really good book. And it also, as you said, it's one of the only books in that category that literally talks about the pain that you go through. Because all the other books are mostly just yeah. focused on success and this is how you do it. But this one is like, it feels a bit more honest and transparent to me. Yeah. And it's still very practical, no? I mean, it gives some very concrete tips on hiring and, and finding like good VPs and all that kind of stuff, especially when you're scaling. So I think it's still yeah. very practical in that, that sense. And and by the way, both books to this day still serve for me as a, yeah, like they're like a handbook. I sometimes go back and reread chapters. Like, yeah. uh, like it's, it's ironic or like, my co-founders, both both of them have read also both books. We're chatting about something and then suddenly someone sends me a picture from one chapter or something like, hey, this is what we chatted yesterday. And it reminds you like how important and relevant it is. So like almost like every one or two years, you should like reread them and uh, bring them back to your mind. Fully agree. Fully agree. I, I I also like. I think I've conducted so many thoughts out of high growth handbooks, so I think I can do, and definitely relate to that. Um, thanks for thanks for sharing them. Um, Mike, is there anything open from your side? Otherwise, I would say uh, let's wrap it up. I mean, there's been so much great content within. Um, no, I think the the only thing that our listeners sadly missed was that Matthias has his dog with him True. and we could see it before we <laughs> before we started the episode which was um nothing against the the content at all but it was my personal highlight uh of the conversation but uh yeah. it, it's very very difficult to compete against that so no yeah. i think uh, as always it was a pleasure chatting matthias and uh very much looking forward to what uh, path space will grow into over the next couple of years awesome thank you so much for having me awesome. it was a pleasure Thanks, Matthias.